I'm running down the road and all of a sudden a cow runs out and right on her tail is this that bull monster six by six and I, I cow call once and he just lets out this huge bugle and I drop the hammer and like I just sank like the happiest moment of my life I was like it just happened hey everyone and welcome to the adventure deficit show where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today we've got Cody Rich, founder and owner of Powder River Cartridge Company and founder and host of the Rich Outdoors podcast. Cody's going to tell us a little bit about himself, a little bit about his background, um, and then he's going to share an adventure story with us. Cody, how you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's a little awkward being you know on the other side of the mic. You know, we were talking about this. Like, it's it's different because I interview everyone else, and now it's like I get the mic turned on me. We'll see how I do on this end. Spotlights <laughs> on you, man. Um, I'm sure you'll do great. I'm really looking forward to uh, to spending some time with you. But first, I just kind of want to give uh, our listeners a little bit of background uh, about you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up. Um, Cody's an avid outdoorsman, and uh, for you fellow adventurers who are into hunting, um, he's a passionate big game hunter. Um, and he's, uh, he's got a really unique, uh, unique upbringing and I'd like to, uh, to dig into that a little bit. So Cody, uh, cue us in on, on, uh, your early life a little bit. I grew up in a little tiny, small town in Oregon. Um, just a hole in the wall. Actually, I think my, I went K through 12 in the same basically building um you know i graduated high school with like 22 people just a little farm community out in the middle of nowhere um but you know growing up kind of on a farm and doing that whole thing we had we had some property and like we had we, had, we have a thousand acre grass seed farm and then kind of where i grew up is like this 40 acre piece of ground that has i think five ponds on it and a river and so i was that kid that like just explorer to the heart man like i would just sneak away explore the river up and down the river like i was you know davy crockett and just trapping up and down the river as a kid that was kind of like my escapism so when i was a kid you know you grow up on a farm you're always working like and so if you want to not work you ended up just kind of sneaking out back and going and playing like so inevitably saturday mornings for me was waking up super early with my fishing rod and gonna go hike the river and, and catch trout all day or or whatever it was you know catching bullfrogs in the ponds and stuff like that and so it's you know early early years was always this escape for me like just to kind of get away and just go wander around out in, out of the middle of nowhere which you know and now when I grow up it's like you're so I was so fortunate back then to to basically have that in my backyard and I look at so many people that you know grew up in the cities and things like that just didn't have rivers and ponds in their backyards to go duck hunt or you know trout fish and do all this crazy cool stuff so you know that was kind of my upbringing and and I I guess uh I didn't really realize it at the time but I was pretty lucky you know just to kind of get to be able to do that kind of stuff all the time and I I think it just kind of progressed you know so as when I was super young it was just always you know like 
like I said, going to the ponds or something. And then as you get older, it's like exploring the river for miles, you know? And then like, you always just have this progression of adventure and you always got to push yourself a little bit farther and a little bit farther and a little bit farther, which it's kind of like how I grew up. And, you know, growing up, my dad was huge into elk hunting. He didn't bow hunt, but he rifle hunted. Okay. And, um, so that's kind of how I got started into to big game hunting or into elk hunting. My dad was a big hunter and I remember you'd always have Bugle magazine. And so like, that was like what I got to live on and, you know, reading Bugle magazine and just like all these stories. And that's, that's what my dad did. Like every fall he was a rifle hunter. So they'd go, you know, over to Eastern Oregon and they'd go hunting. And that was like the great adventure. So as a kid, I got to go deer hunting and stuff, but I was never able to go elk hunting until you're a certain age. You know, it was kind of like the rule in the family. Yeah. So there's that. Be, I think you had to be nine before you could go elk hunting. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up, um, just elk hunting was like the pinnacle and that was like what you wanted to be, you know, like, Oh, I can't wait till I'm old enough to go elk hunting. Right. <laughs> and so that was kind of like my childhood is just dreaming about going elk hunting someday. And I would pretend like I was elk hunting in the back, you know, back 40 and, yep. and just wander around, even though there was no elk around there. Press pause a second. So you actually grew up in a small town community in Eastern Oregon, Central Oregon. What part of Oregon? Actually in Western Oregon. Yeah. In the Valley. Oh, wow. Okay. Willamette Valley? Yep, in the Willamette Valley. Um, kind of on the west side, up against the coast range, a little town called Perrydale. So it's actually not even a town. Like, yes, people, like, people are like, where are you from? Like, uh, <laughs> like you probably won't know. I'm from Perrydale. That's crazy. So it's just like this little tiny town, two stop signs across from each other, and literally grass fields as far as you can see. Yep. So my uh, my uncles uh, had a dairy in uh, in the 80s in Grants Pass. Um, so I grew up doing some summers out there and, uh, fell in love with that area, man. That always, that, that area of the country holds a special place in my heart. Uh, Oregon's an awesome state and, uh, sounds like, yeah, you had a pretty unique opportunity to grow up right in the heart of it. So it's um, funny when you're a kid and you hate working summers on a farm, like that's like the, like everything you, you know, all your friends get to go do stuff and you're like, you're the farm kid that has to work all summer. Like it's so horrible. And then you grow up and you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And now, yeah. In, in, you know, later in life, people romanticize that they write about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you did your, your schooling in a small farming rural community and, uh, and grew up kind of doing, a, doing a bunch of, uh, hooky fishing trips when you were kind of skirting some of the, the some of the uh the farm work um but you had an opportunity to hunt big game um up until the point where you were nine it sounds like before you actually got to do your your coveted elk hunt or once you kind of passed that uh that threshold so to speak and and joined the big boys with uh with the rifle <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, like when you're in Oregon, you can't hunt until you're 12. Now you can actually do some hunting when you're when you're a little bit younger. Um, but when I was growing up, you couldn't hunt until you're 12. So I mean, I got to go along, and I always pack my BB gun, you know, like I would yeah. just want to be like dead. And uh, I think I when I first time I went elk hunting, I was nine years old, and that was like the big adventure. You know, you don't go on a lot of adventures as a kid before nine. And so that was like the pinnacle of this is the big adventure. You know, got to go get new gear and stuff. And like, so you're nine years old, and I remember. My first elk hunt ever, you know, I get to go and 
I, I was really good in the woods, like woodsmanship. I'd been deer hunting since I was probably four. So five years of experience, like I was well-trained like my pants didn't touch each other. There's no swishing in the woods. Like I did not touch a leaf. Like my only job was to not make a noise behind dad. So like you got good at that. You didn't really look up much. Cause if you stepped on a, a leaf or something, you probably got backhanded. Yeah. So like you, you got real good at just sneaking through the woods. And I was nine years old and opening morning and we were sneaking through this stuff and I'll never forget, like I look over, I mean, you're nine years old, you're probably what, three or four feet tall. Yeah. And I look straight over and there's elk like right there. And I'm like, grab my dad, like, dad, elk, dad, elk. Well, he was taller, so he couldn't see these elk, you know, they're bedded down. And I was just like eye level with these elk that were bedded down. I was like, holy crap, there's elk right there. So yeah, I'll never forget. He's like, he's, you know, like grabs me, just sets me down. I was like, holy crap. And, um, <laughs> And he like sir, he got a little ways away from me. I remember because he was trying to get a shot or something. And these elk spook, and I'll never forget my first ever elk hunt. These elk spook and run right by us. And these elk couldn't have been 30, 40 yards from me. And they all run out. The whole herd runs out, and I, this big, huge six point stops 10, 15 yards from me and just holds up as these elk all run out in the opening. And my dad shoots the spike, you know, like we were total meat hunters back then. And, yeah. and, and just like you shot the first elk, yeah. but he shoots this spike. And I'll never forget this big, big branch. Well, I don't know what it was. I was too young to even really remember. I just remember this giant elk stops <laughs> right next to me, let all the other elk run out and boom, my dad shoots a spike <laughs> and like the big bull takes off. And I tell my dad, I still don't know if my dad believed me. Like he was like, no, yeah, sure. Like whatever. But yeah, it was epic first time. You know, that was the first day of my elk hunting. I was like, this is awesome. I'm hooked. That's incredible. So, uh, there's a, there's a nice little elk hunting tip. If you want a better field of view, take a five-year-old with you. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Child's exactly. perspective sometimes, sometimes is, uh, is going to come in handy there. Get, get us into kind of your high school, uh, early working years. What, uh, what transpired there after, uh, after kind of a youth filled with Davy Crockett, Huck Finn style raft adventures down, <laughs> down the, so kind of it just natural progression. I had a lot of older cousins. My cousins are all probably like 10 years older than me. I got three, three male cousins that are about 10 years older than me, kind of in that range. And, um, you know, going into, you know, I was probably 12. And so the, you know, they were, you know, twenties and 10, 12, and they were probably in their twenties. Yeah. And I, I picked up archery, started doing the 4-H archery thing at, at about nine. And so I've been shooting my bow a lot. And then my cousins got into bow hunting and that was kind of like, none of my uncles thought that they're like, what, you guys are going to bow hunt elk. That's ridiculous. And oh, yeah. so all my cousins got into bow hunting elk, you know, in their twenties. And, uh, so naturally I just kind of slid right behind them and, I remember getting to go with my cousins and man, we, we had no idea what we we're doing, but we chased a lot of elk around and view at them and it was a blast. And, you know, like we learned a lot and it, I was just fortunate enough to have, you know, those kind of mentors in a, in a sense, like no one knew what they were doing, but at least, you know, we were, we were going all the time and we, we got really lucky a lot. You know, we just basically stumbled on elk there. We were good, good at finding elk. It was just like, we had no idea how to call them or like what to do. So it was just like a lot of stumbling, stumbling your way through failure to find success. And, you know, like that was just kind of like how I got into to bow hunting elk. And from there it was like, it just progressed. I loved calling elk. All I want to do is call elk. And it's, you know, you grow up, your cousins do something. That's what you want to do. And so like, it was just a natural, like, man, my cousins were the coolest guys I knew. So I picked up calling elk and just 
it kind of went from there. And like I, you know, talked about earlier, it's, you know, that adventure just progresses, progresses and you want to keep going on newer, you know, bigger things. And it was like back then, you know, I was 16 years old, like going to Eastern Oregon was an adventure. That was like, you go across the state to go chase elk. Like that was the next thing instead of hunting in your backyard. It's like, Oh, we're going to go over East. And, and that was kind of like the progression of it. And then it just, escalated from there really heck yeah i mean any t- yeah if you're if you're 12 years old nine years old anything that uh anything that embodies you know the unknown is an adventure you jump in an old yeah. rusty pickup with with an uncle or a grandpa or a dad who's excited to go chase some wild beasts your heart's <laughs> pumping yeah you know for sure. that's cool for sure um, so it sounds like there was a lot of family influence there. Uh, dad and cousins. Did, did you have uncles and grandfathers, uh, involved in this as well? Or was it pretty much, uh, the, the dad and, and your older cousins? So when I started hunting and, uh, my grandpa's still alive and I was, um, he's oh, cool. in his ni- he's 90 now. And I was at just a hospital visiting him and, and we talked about the first time I went hunting. Cause inevitably after that first day, my dad took me and then I got pawned off on, on, on grandpa, you know, and because dad was basically pushing brush for grandpa to try to get something. And so, you know, I, I inherently got to spend a lot of time with my grandpa in that first year. Yeah. Um, and then when I was actually, uh, see here, I was 14 and my dad passed away suddenly from a heart attack and, uh, and it was kind of like a big impact and that's where my cousins took over a lot, teaching me how to hunt. I mean, my dad taught me a lot about hunting from the time, basically four to 14. Oh, wow. And then, and then he passed away and I'll never forget, like my mom, like bless her heart, used to drop me off places. Like she knew like I was obsessed with hunting. And so she would always just, you know, like she didn't have a clue about hunting, but she would drop me off for like a day at some random gate. I'd be like, mom, take me here. <laughs> mom, take me here. And she would. And like you, you look at it, look back at it and you're like, man, you're just dropping like a 12 or 14 year old off for, you know, un, un, you know, unlimited amount of time, just like here, you know, like, and I didn't have a phone back then. So it's like, I really, you know, like I got a, a lot of credit to give to my mom for just basically throwing me out in the wild. And I don't know that there had been a lot of parents that could have done that. Cause I mean, she didn't know how to, you know, hunt or do any of that stuff. So. Yeah. Wow, man. That's, that's pretty cool. So you, uh, you grew up without a dad from 14 on. Yeah. Oh, wow, man. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's kind of like a lot of people are like, man, it's it's crazy, and I think it's probably it's tough to say, but I think one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me grow up super fast. Yeah, you know, like instantly. Now you just have to learn everything on your own, and um, I think that has a lot to do with you know where I've come in life, and I've had a lot of great mentors. Um, a lot of people have kind of filled that gap. Um, you know, one of my neighbors, he was um, he was a big hunting guide, and so like that was a big part of it. You know, he took me hunting, and, and I had all my cousins that took me. So there's always like people that fill that gap in that community, especially in a small community. Yeah. Um, and so instead of having one mentor growing up, you know, I was lucky enough to have five or six. Man, that's great perspective. That's really cool. And that just I don't know. That's more and more rare. It sounds like. Uh the community that you had was, was really small, but every person in that community played a vital role in your upbringing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super thankful for that. And I, I always look back, like, I don't think I would ever change anything. There's a lot of things that have happened in life that you're like, they make you who you are at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think that just kind of ties into everything. That's crazy. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, all right. So, uh, 
what happened kind of in your later teen years? Once once you graduated from high school and folks are getting jobs, probably I got to imagine out on the farms or or they're going to college and then they've got big city dreams. Where's where's Cody end up there? You know, we grew up in a small town. You you have very limited options. You only know what you know. So when you don't know anything else, your career paths are you're very short. And so growing up, my two options, well, I was expected to take over the farm. And so your number one is to be a farmer. And when you, like, as we talked about, you grow up on a farm, it's about the number one thing you despise. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it was like, I love farming, but the problem I have with farming is I was obsessed with hunting. And those two do not mix well because harvest is like right there. Right and, in the heart you know, of the... that was that was always the biggest problem. Like my uncle, I remember my uncle just hated me and my cousins, like why we had to go fishing and hunting all the time. Like he didn't hunt or fish. And so it was just like this giant waste of time in the middle of, you know, harvest. And uh, so like I, I knew I didn't want to be a, a farmer. And the other option was be a firefighter. You know, like so in my family, you had farmers and firefighters. So those are your two career paths. And so I remember thinking, you know, my my neighbor, he was a guide and he actually went to Montana to be a guide about that time. I was in high school going to college and um, like that's what I wanted to do. And my mom was like, absolutely not. You're not becoming a guide. You know, like you can go to college first and then you can become a guide if you want to. So, you know, I kind of went the um, the firefighter route and I was like, okay, I'll go to fire school like firefighters get a lot of time off. They can hunt a lot. So that was kind of like my logic at 17 years old was like, yep, I'm going to be a firefighter because they get to go hunting. Three days (laughs) to fight. Yeah. Three days for firefighting, four days for hunting. Yeah, that was my logic back then. And so, you know, I went to fire school, um, graduated from that. And uh, that was kind of like I based everything around just hunting. And um, I think it was about the time I had got out of fire school and actually picked up a crazy job, um, kind of traveling all over the, the country doing some other some training type stuff. And I was being EMT for that company. Um, and that's kind of when I when I kind of stretched my wings as far as the adventure goes and it was my first out of state hunt and I never forget like that was like the next progression you know you're gonna go like to another state and hunt and that was a big deal like I think I was probably 21 or 22 I think it was 22 would have been 2008 and uh, my first out of state hunt and I'll never forget like I had big dreams of like scouting and checking it out and all this stuff and and just through that summer, I basically had one day that I drove through the unit. And so, like, I had these big plans to, like, scout this unit and spend all this time. But it was in Idaho, so it was tough. And so I got one day to drive through the unit. And I was like, all right, well, that's fine. I'm going to have two weeks to hunt it. <laughs> and sure enough, September comes and it whittles down and I only have seven days to hunt it. I'm like, oh, man, this is pretty tough. But it's, like, out-of-state hunt. And it was the first time I'd ever spent like a big amount of money on a tag. And so there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. You know, you spend $600 on a tag. You're like, oh man, I can't, I can't not fill this tag. And, and so I remember thinking like there was a lot of pressure, like a lot of pressure on me. And I don't remember why it was just, you know, I thought like I had to fill this tag. And so I'll never forget like the first day I get to Idaho, big dreams, this new adventure, this unit I'd barely been to. And I had no idea where I'm going. I kind of driven through it once. I, I just selected this spot along the road and I'm like, I'll camp here, you know, <laughs> like no idea what I'm doing. My gear is terrible at this time. Like I was just 
just out of college and like man i would just look back on it laughing i borrowed a four-wheeler from someone and i from the farm and um I take this four-wheeler way up this road. I'm like, oh, this kind of looks good. And I'll never forget the first day I bugle and three bulls pipe off. And I'm like, this is easy. <laughs> yep, I got this. It's in the bag. Like, the, Idaho is the greatest state ever. Like, oh, man, I was on cloud nine. Yeah. And um, I think it was like right before dark the first night. And I was like, oh, I'll come back in the morning. No problem. I go back to the exact same spot in the morning. Not a peep. I'm like, God dang it. So like cloud nine just dropped a long ways. Yeah. And I spent the, the next four days and I never heard a bugle. I never heard a peep. I covered ground like crazy. And I just, it was hot. It was dry. And I was like, what the heck am I doing wrong? Like just spent four days, not a bugle, maybe three elk tracks the whole time. And I'm like, oh, like just so frustrated and like thought it was the end of the world. And like that panic starting to set in, like, man, I'm going to go home empty handed. Yep. All these things are going on in your head. And uh, I remember there was a storm coming in and I was like, that sucks. That's not good. And super, super low. And I come up over this hill right behind camp and my morale is just garbage. And I was like, hadn't seen an elk, hadn't heard an elk in four days. And I lay out two cow calls and this bull screams like the biggest growl, the biggest bull I've ever heard. And he's like 150, 200 yards, but he's kind of like the wind's not good. And I'll never forget. I cow called twice and this bull just growls like crazy. And I cow call again. He growls like crazy. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is the biggest bull I've ever seen in my life. And I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. like, I'm just making this up in my head and it's just getting bigger and bigger. I was like, I got to get downwind of this bull. So I run back over the hill, jump on the four-wheeler, and I circle around, and I come in, and there's a bunch of little, like, drainages. So imagine this hill with, like, five drainages on it. And I come around, and I'm like, he's got to be right here. Okay. And I slip up nice and slow, and I'm creeping up through this this thicket, and it's just pretty open country with, like, just little thickets. I'm like, he's got to be right here. This is going to be epic. This is the perfect plan. And I cow call nice and soft. I'm thinking he's got to be right there. And nothing. Yeah. And like nothing. I'm like, what the heck happened? He just went quiet. I'm so frustrated. I'm like cow calling louder, cow calling louder. And just like, just like, that was the biggest bull, the closest opportunity I'd had in forever. And he's gone. I could not figure it out. And then I'm just super bummed again. So you know when morale goes up and then down and just like the second time down, you're like, this sucks. The next morning I get up on a glass and vantage point trying to figure out where that bull went or what he did. And I realized I had come around the bottom and I came up the wrong drainage. Oh, so no. this whole time, like I was like, I started looking at it from, you know, 30,000 foot and the higher perspective. And I'm like, Oh, dang it. <laughs> this is like super hot bull. The only elk I'd found all week. And I just happened to walk into the wrong drainage and was like cow calling all nice and sweet. And he was one drainage over probably just screaming his head off and i was just like oh this is so frustrating oh that is frustrating okay so you're 22 years old it's uh it's your first out-of-state elk hunt you paid 600 bucks for the tag you're on day four which means you're starting to get that that creeping anxiety that goes hand in hand with uh with numbered days in the field and an unfilled tag right yep yeah, what happens in those situations is you you know 
panic sets in or, or worry sets in and you start to function differently. So yeah. you start acting in defense instead of offense. That night, literally, that storm rolled in and it rained all night that night and I'm just absolutely bombed. And you always think the worst. And you realize that that when those things happen and morale gets low, you start to think negatively about everything. And so instead of you know the rain coming in and be like, oh, at least everything's going to be quiet now. And, you know, the leaves, the ground's going to be wet, so it'll be quieter. In my head, it's like, oh, great. There's, you know, that was it. That was my chance. I missed it. And you just start letting that negative mentality sink into your head. Yeah. And I remember and then the whole next day it rained. And I, that's when I realized I screwed everything up. And it just rained and rained again. No bugles that day. And I'm like, man, it was just tough. Like mentally you're exhausted. Physically you're exhausted. You're five days into this. And it's the unknown, you know, and when you're in the unknown, you let negativity creep in even yeah. worse than when you're in the known. Mm. And so I think it was, it was probably day six. Um, the next day went to a completely new area, you know, it's raining. I just started hiking and hiking and hiking and I'll never forget. Like, I'm just, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And I had so far from my truck and it was just like, at that point I was so tired. I didn't want to turn around. <laughs> Which, I mean, it doesn't make sense unless you've been in that situation. You're like, I really don't want to walk back. Yeah. But, like, somehow, magically, you think you walk forward, it's going to get better. <laughs> um, and I heard the most faint bugle. Just this high-pitched sound from somewhere. I couldn't even tell where. I'm like, where is that coming from? And I kept hearing it. And I kept hearing it. And I'm like, it's got to be over the hill for me because it's the only way I wouldn't hear it. And so I hike up this mountain and I get to the top and then there's a bull just screaming his head off. And it goes back to cloud nine. And you're like, yes, I'm in the game. It's pouring down rain. I drop my pack and I'm like, go off this elk and I'm, I'm bugling and I'm bugling and he's bugling. It's, it's chaos. And I'll never forget. Like I followed that herd and this herd bull in the rain is screaming. And like, he has no care about me because there's literally bulls just pressuring him and, and they're bouncing off the herd. And, and like, this was like that moment I lived for. It was like, this was everything. And it was like, the bulls are screaming. It's pouring down rain. It's miserable. And I love that kind of weather and I love that kind of stuff. And it's like, I can't do anything about it. So I realize I'm just going to stalk this herd. And so I keep bumping this, like there's a spike on the back end and him and I keep bumping each other and it's just pure chaos. And I get within bow range. I think it was 60 yards one time, 50 yards another time, just can't get a shot, can't get a shot. And I just keep basically dogging this herd and they have no idea I'm there. This one spike is the only thing it knows. And so he's just moving along this ridge and I'm following him and I'm following him and I'm like, okay, I got to get in front. And I move around in front of this herd and like the bull's supposed to step out and he steps out a little bit farther than I wanted. And I go to range him and he's got to be 60 yards somewhere in there. And I go to range and my range finder won't work. It's, oh man. There's nothing. There's nothing. And I look at this bull and I'm like, it's too far. I don't want to guess this shot. Right. And I'm, I'm like, I can get closer. And literally that was the last time. I mean, he just, last time he giggled, like everything shut up and disappeared. Like just out of my life forever. And I'm sitting there and it's like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the same point. It's pouring down rain. I'm probably five miles from my truck and three miles from my pack in the other direction. And I'm just laughing and like wanting to cry at the same oh. time and just pouring down rain and i was like god that sucks that sucks so bad like i was so close so freaking close and i'm drenched to the bone like i just absolutely wet 
and it was like I walked back and it just like it starts to like that was awesome and I was like that sucks I really felt like that was the end that was my one chance that was it and I get clear back to my pack and I'm done like I'm just beat and I get clear back to the truck I get drive to the tent like I'm so wet and I get to my tent and there's six inches of standing water in my tent and a river running through it and (laughs) it's just like the lowest, the lowest set in. It was like that was it. Like I, don't, I got nothing left. I literally did not have a dry piece of gear left, and I'm just like, that's all I got. My rangefinder's broken. My gear's all wet. Like I'm just like, I can't. Like there's nothing. I like I got nothing left. And I loaded up everything in my truck, and I was like, loading up. Like that's it. And I was like, I can't. I can't quite give up yet. I was like, I, I'm gonna be so mad at myself if I give up. And I was like, I just I can't do it. I actually, I, I got cleared to town. I was in town, and I was like, I can't give up yet. I just can't. And so I went to Bymart. I go to Bymart in Idaho, and I buy all new gear. I buy new pants, new shirt, new rain gear, and a new rangefinder. Smart. I'm like, get yourself like, comfortable. Reset. Yeah. You ready? It was just a reset, man. I went and I had a cheeseburger that day, and I was like, just thinking to myself, like, I gotta go back. I'm gonna be so mad if I give up. Like, yeah. I know I'm gonna hate myself get back to camp and uh i didn't even set up my tent that night i was just like you know what i'm just go back straight to that spot if okay. i get in and i get in hopefully i can find him the clouds parted man it was like this like it the rain stopped and i just remember walking in and like the fogs rolling around in the valley it was just like awesome like the seas had parted and uh i'm walking down this road and i he bugles the bull same bull and he bugles and he's like way away from where i lost him he's now 200 yards around the corner from me i'm like no way and i like just run down the road to to see what, you know where he is what's going on and sure enough like i'm running down the road and all of a sudden a cow runs out 40 yards from me and i'm like i just anchor the brakes i'm on the road and right on her tail is this that bull monster six by six and i'm like oh <laughs> i'll never forget i go and buy this brand new rangefinder and this bull runs out, this cow runs out, and she sees me, and he's right on her tail. He doesn't even care. He's so hot. Screams, bugles, and I throw up my rangefinder, and then I'm like, I'm hitting a leaf. So it's like four, four yards, five yards, four yards. I'm like, good. That's so mad. <laughs> I'm like, it's 40 yards. I know it. And he runs, and he runs up the hill. Like, he runs to 50, and I, I cow call once, and he just lets out this huge bugle, and I drop the hammer, and like, I just sank like the happiest moment of my life. I was like, it just happened. That just happened, you know? And I was like, just cloud nine. And I never forget that moment because it was like, I had given up mentally and I was like, I'm going to be so pissed. I don't know what's going to happen. I have one more evening hunt. I just got to try. And I went back and I'll be 100% honest, pure luck. (laughs) I mean, it just right spot at the right time. That bull came around around the corner, just being in the right spot at the right time. But if I wouldn't have been there, you know, I wouldn't have, if I would have went home, it never would have happened. And so that, that has held true to my entire hunting career. You never know what can happen. Just give it one more chance. Wow, man. So you, you anchored the bull six by six in the truck. Yeah. My first six by six too. And my, my wife at the time was with me and just miserable, wanted to go home, like was not having it. And so I get back and I kind of gutted that bull out and I got back like i don't know it was right after dark and i was like yeah i've got a spike and she's like oh cool that's awesome so she packed and and rain had stopped and so packs in there with me and to help kind of pack the first load out and 
comes around the car. She's like, that's not a spike. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's the big bull that I was chasing the whole time. So it was awesome. You know, I got that bull basically worked up and I remember hiking out that night. It was midnight and I'm in that storm came back in and it was absolutely raining sideways. I was again, soaked to the bunks wearing Bimart rain gear. Yeah. And I was just cloud nine. I was so happy. Like I was just the biggest smile on my face, hundred pound pack, like got to my truck at one in the morning and, uh, you know, so I was basically packed it out by myself. She waited in the truck. She wasn't had nothing to do with that. Uh, and so it was just awesome, man. I remember going in the next day, packing it out and just so happy that I, that I made that last, you know, hoorah. Adventure deficit community. I, I'm so excited to talk to Cody because he represents something that I was, uh, I was tuned into, but I think so many people miss. And our community is comprised of, of climbers and backpackers, hikers, um, snowboarders, big mountain skiers. We've got paddlers, whitewater, and, and the like. Um, we've got all kinds of different people who, who participate in um, what a lot of people would call uh, extreme sports in the outdoors. But uh, when, uh, when the hunting conversation gets brought up, I think a lot of people are pretty quick to excuse it. But a backcountry archer chasing after elk has got some metal. And uh, when it comes down to it, man, Cody's story is a story of absolutely embracing misery. I mean, he's six days in on a hunt. He's solo. He's going through the emotional roller coaster that goes hand in hand with being fatigued, wet, miserable, underfed, over overworked, really. Um, and to, to top it all off, it seems like every time he just about gets to the point where the clouds break proverbially this this black cloud hovers over top of him and pisses on his rain party it just pisses on his wheaties but he had he had the wherewithal to go back into town grab a cheeseburger grab some fresh socks come back out onto the mountain and get it done and i think i think anybody i mean triathletes long distance runners you ultra marathon guys, I mean, you can attest to that when, when you're going through that, you know, I mean, if you're on mile 25 and you're going, I don't know if I got 30 in me, there's something that keeps you going, but you, it's certainly not all about, you know, the hero shot at the end of the race. There's a bigger story that goes on and you're fighting battles. You just, you're fighting battles the entire time. That's yeah, awesome, there's a, man. There's I'm a great s- book. Um, I just finished it called Stealing Fire, and I'm sure you know a lot of the guys have read it. Um, it's a great book, and it, it talks a lot about <clears throat> that kind of pushing yourself farther and farther and farther. And that was kind of like my case too. You know, I grew up doing a lot of motocross and things like that, and I pushed myself, pushed myself, pushed myself, and that was kind of like what pushed that and to push hunting even farther. And now, you know, I see, you know there's a lot of guys that wouldn't you know a lot of you know say triathletes or climbers or guys that wouldn't think of hunting as being that hardcore but i think the mental game within hunting is far greater than most people can really fathom mm-hmm. and, and you know when you're in the backcountry and you're solo like there's a lot of things that creep up on you and i'm like climbers guys get that i mean everyone gets that and i think that's you know it's just being able to push through those dark times and just tr- know that it, it with especially with hunting it's like everything can change in a second everything can flip and you just have to keep pushing and you have to keep, you know, putting yourself in the right position to have that opportunity for success. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about 
the the one if there was just one central life lesson that you took from this story, Cody, that uh, that has stayed with you all these years, what I, I mean, try and try and wrap a you know a phrase around that or a couple of sentences around that for us. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to do because it's tough to wrap that entire thesis into one thing, but and it's just so close, so cliche. And I think the older you get, the more you realize that these cliche sayings become so true. And like, like all these things that your parents told you or your mentors told you, like they just, they, they're true. You know, it's like, just never give up, never give up. Cause you don't know what's going to happen. It just, it's so, it's so cliche and it's so true. Yeah. You know, like how many times in life you just, you don't know what's going to happen. It just takes one little thing or one little, whether it be business, you know, like one deal to go through and, and the entire business looks different now. And it kind of fast forward. So if you go a year ahead of that and then 2009, 23 years old, right? 22, yeah, 22 years old, 2009, August 1st, um, <clears throat> we went swimming, you know, getting ready for hunting season. I had a big season planned and, uh, August 1st, I dive into a pond and in this pond was a bucket of concrete and it was on a floating dock so i dive into this pond and uh hit this bucket of concrete head on and snap my neck <laughs> and so left me you know broken broke my c6 um, shattered my c6 into a bunch of pieces and i was laying there paralyzed and uh, i'll never forget one of my best friends sam he pulled me out and i was like it's bad isn't it and i remember it was bad when like if a lot of people don't like to hear this part um uh, you know, like when you break your leg or something and you can see like the side of your foot and it looks funny. When I broke my neck, I knew it was bad because I was, I came out of the water and Sam was holding me and I could see the bottom of my foot. And I was like, that's not good. You're oh not supposed word. to see the bottom of your foot. And I told Sam like, it's bad, isn't it? He's like, yeah, it's pretty bad. And, um, so I'm laying there and I, like the, the nerve damage was all in my elbow. So like, it felt like I had wrecked a motorcycle on pavement. I was just like, my elbows are bleeding. My elbows are bleeding. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, my elbows are, are they bleeding? And it was just like, the nerve pain wasn't crazy. But when I got in the helicopter, my fingers moved and I was like, all right, we got this. Like, it's good. Like, I'll be fine. And like, it still couldn't move my legs at all. And then I think it was like a week later, my left foot, it may have been sooner than that. I think it was right after, yeah, it was right after surgery. My left foot moved and I'm like, got this. Like, it's fine. My mindset the whole time was like, this will get like, is this going to take a long time to get better? And so I'm laying in the hospital bed and, you know, it's chaos. You don't know what's going on and you drugged out of your mind anyway. But I remember a doctor, the, I would always ask like someone come in I'm like, okay, what's going on? Like, what are my odds? And I remember like asking this doctor, like, Hey, what are my odds? And he's like, well, you'll never walk again, but you know, looks like your hands are going to come back. Holy cow. And I remember the nurse starts bawling and in my head, it was just like, no, you're wrong. Like 100%, like I just knew I would get better. And so I'm like, he doesn't know, like anything could happen. Like I'm going to get better. This is going to take a long time, but it's going to get better. And so it's just that mindset, like you don't know what's going to happen. And you like the only way to deal with life is to look at the positive and be like, okay, how do we move forward? This is what happened. How do I move forward? And, you know, through luck, whatever, I don't want to say it's my, I, I do believe a lot of it's mindset, but I'm sure I had a ton of luck involved there. But over the next, you know, what, two months, even a year, like I slowly regained like my legs back and I got one leg back. And, um, and so it was just like, 
having that positive mindset. And I'll never forget, like, so I went into surgery. They, they put a cadaver bone in me and still couldn't move my legs. Um, I think after surgery, I could move my one toe. But, I, like, I couldn't even hold up a pop can. Like, I, I was completely weak, couldn't do anything. And it was just 100%, like, I'm going to get better. I'm going to figure this out. And I remember going into rehab, and everyone around me, man, was just – they were done. Like there was a lot of people who went through the same thing and everyone was just done. They gave up. And I was just like, like, how can you just give up? Like, this is what happened. But like, I'm just going to keep going. Like I have to, like, there's no other option. What's, what's my option? Give up. So I might as well just work my ass off. And even like, no offense to the nurses, they just, they live in that world and they're surrounded by people who have given up. And so they give up, they teach you how to live in a wheelchair. And it was just like, no, like, I remember, for instance, we they put me on this um, treadmill thing and, and they try to make you walk. Like at this point, uh, my left leg was working, but my right leg was gone. Like it had nothing left. And I they would basically – like you're in this brace and they throw your leg on top of the treadmill and it basically drifts back down river. And like they did that for 20 minutes and was like they were done. I was like, no, we, we do this until I walk again. Like I don't care if it's eight hours. I don't care if it's ten hours. And like the poor nurses were sweating their ass off. And I'm like, they're trying to help me. And I'm like, no, this is what we do. Like we train. Like this is all we do. All we do is train. And it was just, it was tough because you live in a negative mindset and you're like surrounded by negativity. And the nurses are trying to teach you how to live in a wheelchair. And I remember they were like, you know, what what are your hobbies? I'm like, well, backcountry hunting and racing. And they're like, well, you're gonna have new hobbies. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like I'm going hunting. You don't understand. Like I'm gonna figure this out. And I think that positive mindset and, you know, going through those struggles and, and pushing yourself earlier in life just had a lot to do with that and kind of learning to walk again. It took a long freaking time, but wow. that's, you just got to push yourself and like, just keep going. I remember like literally in my head, it was August 1st when I, when I had my accident and the entire month of August, I'm in rehab and I think into September. And I just remember like, I got bow season. I got to go hunting. Like that's what I got to do. Um, but yeah, I was basically told I'd never walk again. And you know, in hindsight, like doctors have to tell you those kind of things because if they tell you, you're going to walk again, but the best advice you can ever get is someone telling you, you can't do something because what did I do? I was like, I'll show you, like, I'm gonna figure it out. Um, but I don't know. It's, you know, that's just life. You just got to keep pushing. It's the only option you got. Wow, man, that ties in. That that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I didn't I didn't know we were gonna get into that, but uh, <laughs> sorry if I'm running too long on you. No, man, I could talk for hours. I, that's an incredible story of the the human spirit and just demanding your outcome, man. Like, wow. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. Adventure Deficit's mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire you through these stories and the life lessons they hold. We can't wait to see you get out there in pursuit of your own adventures and combat the deficit. We need your help in achieving this, and there's several ways you can get involved. First, if you're listening to this, you probably already know we're on iTunes under Adventure Deficit, but be sure to click subscribe. This way, our new episodes will automatically appear in your download queue and we'll know how many of you we're reaching. We'd love to see your feedback on there too, so feel free to post a note and let us know how we're doing. Our main website, www.adventuredeficit.com, which serves as a base camp for all of our content, is where we'll post notes from each episode, including timestamps from the highlights and direct links to any gear or information that you might want to revisit. 
There are gear reviews and short stories from other exciting adventures not featured on the podcast. Under support, you can either buy stuff or donate to the show. A special thanks to those of you who have already bought t-shirts or donated to us directly. This revenue enables us to continue producing content, so think about helping us in that way too, if you can. Finally, you can connect with us on social media. Our Facebook page is at the Adventure Deficit. Give us a follow, or we're on Instagram too, under Adventure Deficit. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. Um, all right, so circle back with me real quick. Um, so do you have that bull hanging somewhere? I do. It's still in my living room. And, and that's, you know, one of the things that people ask me a lot about, cause I got a lot of heads hanging in my house and, and you know, like a lot of friends that don't hunt and they'll come over and have for dinner and they're like, you know, like, why do you, why do you have these heads? You know, like that seems so barbaric, mm. but to me that's, it represents that story. You know what I mean? Like, and every day I walk through my house and I can tell you, you know, all these stories that belong to those to those heads or those memories and they can call them trophies, but it seems it's not the right word. It's just a memory, you know? And like every day I walk through the house and I, that triggers that memory. So it keeps it fresh for me. And it's like, it's, it's to me, like it's a symbol, you know, like, you know, the same way of trophy for a triathlete, your triathlon is, you know, um, you remember all of the hardships that went into that for training, for, for the race, the struggles that went through that. The same thing when I look at antlers on the wall, it's like, man, what an epic story. What an epic hunt that was. Totally. And like, it just triggers that memory for me. And that's kind of why I have heads hanging up to me. Totally. That's like what it's, you know, it symbolizes. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, there's something to be said to avoid the conversation is, is wrong in my opinion. To, uh, to embrace the conversation that exists between kind of the anti-hunting camp and, you know, the, the hunting enthusiasts is, uh, is to, to grow together collectively. And I think it, it starts with having um, a, a respectful platform by which to, to represent your angle of the story from, right? And B, yeah. for somebody who's willing to go through that much pain in order to chase the trophy that's uh, that's hanging on their wall, there's there's a, a story behind that trophy. It's not so much about the celebration of the death. I think it's about the celebration of the the, the components of that that story, really. So I just think, I mean, there's a couple guys who are doing it really well. I'm I'm gonna miss a lot of people here, but what one guy who comes to mind right out of the gate is Steve Ranella, meat eater. Um, I think he does a fantastic job of uh of jumping into that that conversation i mean taking uh taking a potentially conflictive you know encounter with with some people who vehemently oppose big game hunting and saying hey man here's what we do and and doing it with enough tact and doing it with the right the right flavor um i think it's just really going to lend itself to uh to seeing uh, a our numbers grow and b having having backcountry big game hunters invited into that broader conversation of, of, you know, extreme athletes or, or onto that platform of, uh, of extreme athletes. No, I think you're right. And this, I mean, like I said, it's interesting to watch that shift and Ronaldo does a great job of being a proponent for that. And at the end of the day, you know, trophy hunting or, you know, whatever you want to call it, it gets a bad name. And we all do this for the meat. Like I, hands down, there is nothing better than throwing a steak and have it, throwing a steak on the grill and having that backstory to be like, this is what I went through to get this. Like you just, you can't fathom what that feels like unless you've done it. 
And, you know, for me to say that I'm going out there to find the biggest bull, it's tough because you can't really understand. I think you, you get into hunting because you're like, yeah, the, the, the quality organic meat interests me. But you fall in love with the adventure. You fall in love with the, the struggle. Like it's so, it's so much the struggle and the adventure. And, you know, I go in, now I go 15 miles into the Montana or 20 miles into the Oregon backcountry and the struggle that it takes. You know, I could go harvest meat much easier. I could, and that's just the honest truth. Is if you're going to talk about like, is like, am I doing it for the meat? Yeah, I'm doing it for the meat, but I'm also doing it to push myself farther mentally and physically. And you know, I the story that gets told around the meat I has as much effect as just the meat itself. You know, I want to go harvest my own meat, but I also want to have the story behind it and have the struggle behind it and all that. And so like, it's tough because a lot of if you don't if you don't live in that world, and you don't understand it it doesn't really make sense. You know, mm-hmm. it, it seems like we're out there chasing antlers and in some, in some capacity we are, but at the same time, it's, it's all about, you know, doing it, how it's, how it's done, you know, doing it the right way and making sure the struggle is real and, and, you know, being able to earn that meat. Some, something that I think time and time again, when I'm scrolling through social media and, uh, I, I'm just kind of curious to hear what your take is on this, but it's been a recurring thought of mine that when I'm scrolling through social media and I see a lot of photos of men in the backcountry with camo on, blood on their faces, blood on their hands, and an animal that's just been freshly killed, set up in such a way where whether or not they decide to do it intentionally, um, the way that it comes across is barbaric. And the way that it comes across to what I, to what I would view as... Um, a distasteful placement of, of an animal's life that's just been taken could come across, uh, to somebody who's of the anti hunting camp as, uh, an exponential F you or a middle finger to, to somebody who would, uh, not fully understand the story that, that might belie that, that photo of that bloody, bloody beast. Do you think there's any danger associated with snapping or capturing a moment without much forethought and sharing it with the masses when it comes to uh to sharing what i would consider to be the trophy of the story um with with kind of the instagram or the the facebook world that's interesting you asked that it's it's definitely a double-edged sword um i think on one hand Instagram is a highlight reel and you know, social media is, I always say social media is merely a microphone. Um, and a lot of things get taken out of context in that both for good and for bad. The, the trophy photos and things, you know, I'm always super respectful of the animal and you know, there's a lot of things that, that I see that are kind of, you know, not tasteful, but a lot of people would even consider like a grip and grin. What we're talking about is, you know, say I'm holding up the antlers and that's kind of the traditional photo, and it seems to rub people the wrong way. So right. I go back and forth on this. It's on one hand, if you don't understand what happened, it's really, really hard. You know, it's really hard to understand why I'm smiling when something's dead. Yeah. Um, it, it is. It's and it's like I want everything to come off in a tasteful way, but at the same time, a part of me says society has become very weak, and you know, we we. Um, we, we get so offended by every little thing and a part of me says I shouldn't 
basically cater because it's just going down that road. So in one aspect, you know, I'm, I'm 100% completely respectful to the animal and, you know, I don't want it to appear like as I'm smiling over this dead animal like a psychopath. But at the same time, I guess unless you've been there, you can't really understand the joy that goes into that. And it's it's a weird situation where you're like – you're remorseful. You are. You just feel like, what did I just do? And then on the other side, it's like all this work kind of coming to the end. It's a weird emotion that I, I, you know, I can't really attribute to much. Um, but you have to experience it to, to truly understand it. And so I, I agree that it's hard because social media has the this microphone that puts – pictures of dead animals in front of people who just don't understand that circumstance. And we have to be careful with that because a lot of those people are easily offended and they, I mean, that's their right. And they can, you know, they are offended and, and for better or worse, you know, they can do a lot about that these days. So it's, 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 I battle that because on one hand it's, you know, I don't want to cater to people just being soft, like things die. And that's the truth. Like I can't, I can't, I can't sugarcoat that. You know, like for you to eat, you have to understand that something died. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to come off as distasteful and and show that in the wrong way because I, I have more appreciation for these animals than almost anyone. And I, that's what's really hard to kind of put into words for people who don't hunt or don't understand it. Like you just don't understand how much appreciation I have for elk. Like I love elk as a species. And I think people get wrapped around the individual animal. And, you know, they're like, why, how could you kill that elk? Well, it's like, I love the species and I want the species to be here. The individual is a smaller picture. And so like, it's tough, you know, it's something you battle with. Like I said, it's a double-edged sword. And like, do you post that stuff and kind of cater to the, like, don't offend anyone. Or do you like, Hey, this is what it's about. Come experience it. And then you can have your own opinion. I I don't know. Does that seem like a fair answer? Like, Oh my word. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Cause I want people to understand that as a hunter and a conservationist and as an ethical uh, human being, I have a a certain degree of remorse when I let go, when I lose, when I lose an arrow or I touch off on a rifle, there's, there's no coming around it. It's, it's going to uh, to result in hopefully a swift and, and ethical kill, but a kill involves blood. That's that's why I asked Cody because I think I tend to not share my photos that that have a lot of blood based on a conversation that I had with a with a buddy of mine who owns uh, Russell's Gun and Guide um, out in Eastern Colorado. Uh, but Russell McLennan and uh, and I uh, had an opportunity to take a photo of my first antelope and it wasn't a big buck antelope by any means, but it was a very special antelope to me because of all the work that went into it. Right. Um, and I hustled right up to that thing and, and I, you know, I was ready to do what you call the grip and grin. And as I hovered over it, he said, Whoa, 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 hold on. And in that moment I had, I had so much energy going toward the excitement of the hunt, which is completely understandable. But this was the first time I had encountered somebody who said, what kind of message are you about to send to the rest of the hunting world if you do this wrong, right? Yeah. So what he did was he took some dirt and he soaked up the blood that was around, you know, it was a long shot. So took yeah. care of the nostrils, took care of the tongue, kind of coated in, you know, the the dirt into the, the cape of the animal and, and hid that blood. And there was a little bit of blood on that bullet wound, but for the most part, that shot was done so professionally and it 
it speaks volumes to how much care he has, not just for, you know, the treatment of, of Hunter's reputation, but also just being a heads up individual, like just being, just kind of being the captain of that play there where he, he had the wherewithal to go, Hey, in the midst of all this excitement, we got to absolutely make sure that we're still portraying the right message as a, as a Hunter based group to, uh, to the people that that hate this what it boils down to is that hunting is a right not a privilege and you have to have 51 percent of the majority that are okay with that 10 years ago 50 years ago people didn't they didn't care if you hunted that's cool and you did what you did and i think we came around this this bend and it was like okay if you hunted you were this dumb redneck and you know you went out and drove your truck around and drank beer and, and shot animals and that's so barbaric of you and now we're circling back to a deeper understanding, and a lot of that comes from this openness of what we do, you know, backcountry hunting and, and acquiring your own meat. And so I think it's always important to keep the 51% in mind. It's not the anti, you know, if a vegan wants to hate on me, that's fine. You know, you have your beliefs. That's that's cool. I don't I don't want to change that. It's the people that don't have an opinion on it, or yeah. maybe they're like, oh, my grandpa hunted. I don't know. Maybe I should be against hunting. That's the person I have in mind. And so they're not against me holding a dead animal. They understand that that's where meat comes from. They're the logical group. And what I want to keep there is like making sure it's tastefully done. So it's not blood everywhere. I'm not sitting on top of it, holding it and doing all that stuff. It's appeasing that 51% and making sure they're okay with hunting. Even if they don't hunt, I'm not saying everyone should be a hunter. It's hard. And it's like, you have to kill stuff. And that's, 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 big step for a lot of people so i'm not saying everyone should do it but i think that we need to appease the 51 percent and like keeping them to where hunting is okay to them maybe it's not for you but you're okay with someone else doing it and that's where you know you have to kind of keep it in that middle ground there's always going to be anti-hunters there's always going to be hell there's always going to be rednecks that just want to shoot everything and and this and that and so like you're going to have both ends of the spectrum and that's fine but it's making sure that 51 percent of the population is okay with hunting yeah yeah, that's a good way to say it. And I think, yeah, that embodies where I'm at too. Cause I, I oppose the, you know, the marginal amount of misrepresented or, or hunters that misrepresent us. Uh, sure. I view them in the same camp as, as I do some of the antis. It's like, man, that's not our sport. That's not, that's not yeah. being a steward of the land. That's not being ethical. There's, there's just a lot of wrong that I see with that type of hunting that will basically, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to lend itself to the longevity of any, any one species to have somebody just go fill up their truck with, you know, one tagged animal and five poached animals. That's not hunting. Yeah. That's not who we are. We're not all and about to me, that. Those aren't hunters. That's I mean, not those a hunter. Are, I mean, those are just poachers. That's a poacher. You know, like, it's right. not, that's not who represents me at all. Right. And so I think that's important to differentiate yourself. And like, I think we're doing a good job of that. And Renell is a big part of that. And like, you know, a lot of these guys that kind of are advocates for our sport and, and basically saying, hey, look, we're this hardcore diehard group of backcountry hunters. And everyone has their own wilderness. Don't get me wrong. You know, people want to say, well, this is backcountry or that's backcountry. Like everyone has their own wilderness. If you grew up in downtown L.A., you may think that the national forest outside of town is your wilderness. That's right. cool. Like right. that's fine. Everyone has their own wilderness. And I don't want to like harp on like, oh, we get into these competitive battles within our own group to say, well, that's not wilderness or this is not wilderness. Wilderness is your own. Like everyone has their own. The guy who grew up 
in the Yukon is going to think your wilderness is nothing. It's you know pretty what I mean? Tame. Like he's going to think my wilderness is nothing. You're like, oh, 10 miles into the back country. You don't know what you're talking about, boy. Yeah. And so right. everyone had like just to each his own. Like everyone has their own wilderness and their own experience and everyone takes away from it, you know, what they what they need to or what they will. So you go on your own hunt and do your own thing. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't look at Instagram because it's a highlight reel and people put stuff up there and, and we get wrapped around numbers and these horns like everyone wants to kill a bigger bull. Like I don't care if it's a two hundred inch elk you know like if that's your dream go chase it and do your own thing don't worry about what instagram portrays for everyone else because you're out there for you like that's at the end of the day you got to do everything for you cool after uh after just kind of getting to know a little bit more about how big uh your heart is and how much fight you've got in that that dog uh that's that's Cool, but I want to also talk about uh, some of the stuff that you've got going on now. I overheard a few of your uh, Wapiti Wednesdays, uh, and in those Wapiti Wednesdays, I heard you say uh, something that really resonated with me, and it was um, you encouraged your listeners who are thinking about hunting out of state to buy your tags first and worry about the gear second. And I think as a, I mean, as a, consumer society that is so left side i mean that is so opposite of what what we tend to do it falls perfectly in line with hunters being conservationists and so much of that money going straight in toward caring for the land and the species that we hunt um so i wanted to ask a couple of questions one of them being and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But I want to get a good ballpark figure so people can actually monetize this thing. Um, and I've written a couple articles on it too, but um, I just want to break it down to its most basic form. One passionate backcountry hunter sharing with us how much he spends on tags annually. Cody, what do you spend in 2017 <laughs> on tags? What do I spend on tags? So... Tag draws are a whole nother thing and like to each his own. Like you don't have to go out and spend what I spend. I've been doing this a long time. And so when people – when I say buy tags, not gear and that goes completely against you know the, you know, the norm, right? Every, I mean we're based on selling products and that's just what happens. And a lot of people will gripe at me because I do have nicer gear than most. It's – been acquiring for a long time you know like you spend 20 30 years and you get some gear and and so people like to get on me about that but i have no problem like going back and i actually talked to i talk about this i want to go back and do i want to do a hunt every year like with the minimum you know it's very like the minimalist hunt and so what i spend on gear i've spent very little on gear but uh it's it's not basically apple it's, it's tough for everyone to be like well you have nice gear how do I get into this? And so going back to the tax question, I, I put in for a lot of different states. I have for a long time. And so I probably spend a couple thousand dollars a year just in applications, um, which you don't have to do. Like you could go to Idaho every year or you could go to your home state, whatever that may be. You know, Colorado, very cheap if you live there or even if you're from the East Coast, it's easy to go to Colorado, get an over-the-counter tag. So rough breakdown of the tags I have, you know, let's say Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. Those are kind of like my three states that I go to. Um, in my home state of Oregon, I, 
catch me off guard here, but I'm, you know, say 150 bucks total, I think, or 125 bucks for all my tags. Uh, I think an elk tag, you know, resident tags, like 40, 50 bucks, something like that. So super cheap. Um, that's where hunting your home state is really helpful. Non-resident, our tags are probably 600 bucks. And so going to Idaho, I'm a non-resident, which means I don't live there. I have to pay a little bit more for tags. So I think I'm $660 into that tag every year. And you can buy a second one. So that's license and tag. And so roughly, you know, you could kill two elk on, on I think, a thousand bucks there. And in, in Montana, a little bit more for that state, it's, I think, $850 for an elk tag there. But you get five weeks of bow season, you get five weeks of rifle season. So when I say buy tags, not gear, what I really mean is, and this goes for all financial advice, buy experience, not products. When you buy an experience, you're like, you buy an Say I buy a Montana hunt. I buy that hunt, I think it's in January. I'm thinking about that hunt for six months, how epic that hunt's going to be. could be Idaho. Say I buy an Idaho tag in, in March, and for four months I'm like planning this hunt. I'm thinking about this hunt, and I go on this hunt, and it's, I have those stories. That story I just told you probably cost me 1000 bucks. That's a story I keep for my entire life. You know, I have nothing for gear except for I had to buy ring gear there, a couple hundred bucks. Um, but when you buy experiences over product, you have a memory. You know, you buy a product, you're over it. You buy a new truck, it's old a year later. And, you know, it's just like it's over. And same with products. You can buy a new product and buy a new product. People chase that dream. They're always buying more stuff. Buy experiences. And that's what I think is super important. And so go to Alaska. I spent three grand to go to Alaska on a crazy adventure. And I, yeah, I had to buy maybe 500 bucks in gear and I was definitely didn't have nice enough gear, but at the end of the day, like having the best gear in the world, isn't going to make you a better hunter days in the field are, it's just number of days. And you're going to remember those days. You're going to have experiences from those days. Like just, that's why I'm huge on buy experience, not gear. And don't get me wrong. If you can afford gear, like if you can buy tags and then you got five grand left over go buy gear if it makes you comfortable if you that's what you want to do like i don't like i'm not saying don't buy gear you have to have crappy stuff to and you have to have a suffer fest that's fine if you can afford it but don't i just don't like the kids or the people that you know buy a thousand dollar pack and a thousand dollar tent and then don't have enough money to go on a hunt <laughs> they tell me they got to work you know like you got to go for this well you're paying for the gear you bought you don't have time to go do what you want to do it's the gear's not going to make it's going to make it a little more comfortable but at the end of the day the experience is all you're going to remember that's awesome advice i think we can all benefit from that buy experiences not just gear i mean we're all a little bit gear crazy i am i know i I love to i mean before i go out on a hunt one of my favorite things to do is to go down in the basement grab all the stuff i'm going to need for it lay it out nice and pretty trying to get it all you know organized beforehand that's fun and if somebody were, were to say how much gear do you have there I think I'd have probably kind of a similar response to, to what you just said when I say, hey, how much do you spend on tags? Well, you got to start slowly because this <laughs> I didn't just go buy all this yesterday. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's what's tough is guys get into this. And it's like they look at me or they look at someone else that has all this cool guy gear. And it's like, man, I need this. I need that. You know, and this is the, what Ronella talks about. This is what Cody talks about. Like, this is what the guys have. I need that. We didn't start with that. We started with nothing. And my first six-point bull I ever killed, I had Bimart camo on and some crappy Bimart rain gear that worked for like 10 minutes and a rangefinder that didn't work. So, like, that's just what I started with. And, like, it, 
that made me who I am. So now 20, 30 years later, 20 years later, it's like you have better gear, but it took a long time. And so I think in the beginning and too many guys get wrapped around the axle about, you know, having the cool guy gear. And I don't think it matters. Like you talk about packs, guys are big on packs. You can give me a burlap sack and twine. I'm still going to go. Like if it comes down to like not having the tag or having a nice pack, sorry, I'll take them. I'll carry a quarter of meat on my, you know, on my back with no pack. Yeah. I've done that, you know? And so like, it's just, I think it's all relative. Let's go into uh, into just some some quick and easy questions. Well, I call them quick and easy because that's my job, but your job might be harder because you got to <laughs> answer them. Um, any of these that don't make sense or are not applicable, just say pass. What's a dream hunt look like for you? That changes a lot. Um, you know, as you get older, things change. It's a mountain hunt. I don't really care. You know, a goat hunt has kind of always been in the back of my head. A sheep hunt's up there, you know, just going on a crazy adventure. The older you get, you know, the, the like I said, the adventures seem to get bigger and bigger. And so, you know, lately I've been watching guys on these international hunts and, and it's cool. Like I think culture interests me more as I get older. And so I think as you get older, ex- things get more extreme. Even though I haven't done a goat hunt, I still want to do that. But now the next thing's a sheep hunt. And then from that, it's always going to be like I want to travel I want to see cultures. I want to hunt with different cultures. Like just that's what interests me. So the short answer is it's always going to change, but it's always going to be mountain hunts. It's always going to be extreme conditions. A couple of guys who just recently came out with, uh, with a new show, um, called dropped Casey and Chris Kiefer. I don't know if you've seen it, but, uh, it helped spark this next question. Someone puts you on an Island with your bow, a knife with a flint, a tarp, Food for three days and two quarts of water. You think you'd make it for a month? <laughs> Depends on the island, but yeah, I mean, I have no no worries. You know, like my skills, if you want to call them that, I could survive for a month. Yeah, okay, no problem. What kind of bow would you be uh, taking with? That you? sounds that sounds like my best vacation ever. <laughs> <laughs> that might correspond with the dream hunt question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what kind of bow would you be using? Cool. That's a good call. Um, just, so this boils down to like the story that's told I'm uh, called wheel gun. Like I'm pretty new school when it comes to bows. Uh, but I have this itch, you know, and I've grow up, grown up watching all the old school hunters. And so like, if you're stuck on an Island and you have to hunt for survival, like it's gotta be a trad bow. Like, and I'm not even a trad bow guy, but like if you're stuck on an island, that's the story that gets told. It's not very cool if I'm like, oh, my brand new Matthews Halon. But if, if it's a trad bow, now that's a cool story. So yeah. it's, it's such like in life, do everything for the story. If it makes a good story, do it. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, so what kind of knife would you have with you? We're going to nostalgia here. like. I run so a couple of years ago I started running only Havilons just to see if I could do it because it's super light you know going to the backcountry world but I'm gonna go nostalgia and it's gonna be an old timer my dad gave me an old timer and I still have it so I don't take it out because I'm afraid I'm gonna lose it but um, yeah it's a trad bow and an old timer knife like getting super nostalgic here <laughs> dude I'm start I'm starting to like you more and more I've got uh, I've got a charade folding knife old timer same story he's got the uh, it's got, you know, the bone style handle and it's pins yeah. are so corroded and, and rusted out. But I, I cherish that thing because it was my grandfather's and I'm not going to do anything yeah. with it. I'm just, I don't know. But I think uh, as far as um, 
your your first two choices, I got to say I'd agree with you because a wheel bow is inevitably going to go out of tune, right? And you're oh, going to yeah. You're going to have a hard time finding your your dealership to put that thing on a press <laughs> if you're in the middle of nowhere. Um and an old-timer knife is just too cool to replace with <laughs> yeah. something that's brand new. Um so food for 3 days. Are you uh are you a freeze-dried food kind of guy or would you take uh what would you take with you? Oh, it's a good question. So, I mean, yeah, normally I pack a lot of freeze-dried stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, freeze-dried stuff. But I will say, like, if I'm going nostalgic, like, it's going to be a great story. So, clearly, an ammo can full of, like, spam and oysters. Maybe, like, sardines. I love me some sardines on the on the mountain. So, like, i got to go, like, I'm a sucker for misery, man. I'm going to go, like, old school, like, a can of sardines. Like, that's what you got to live off of. Well played. <laughs> you might have to be you might have to fend for your sardines with your charade old timer because uh yeah. i think if you show up and make a messy camp with oysters and fish oil you're gonna have some big four four-footed visitors at night yeah hey if that's the kind of island man that couldn't be interesting for sure <laughs> yeah you might you might have brought a knife to a bear fight yeah that's right. then i wanted my wheelbow maybe a 45 70 or something yeah <laughs> Um, and that's a great segue into uh, Powder River Cartridge Company, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, how are you going to carry your water? You going to carry um, old wine skins? You going to use uh, you going to use an aluminum canteen with olive drab uh, an olive drab like uh, mill surplus style webbing uh, around it, or are you going to use uh, a Nalgene or, or a Camelback? <laughs> I mean, we're on the we're on the nostalgia, so like. We could go like we have to kill a pig and use a bladder for uh, <laughs> the water sack, you know, like that's pretty hardcore. Um, I don't know the old canteen. I did have a canteen when I was a kid. I had this uh, tin canteen and I would pack that around with me up and down the river. Like so, like I had like some weird. I remember I had like a like uh, not a wool blanket or something like on the outside of it, like it's colored fabric. I don't remember what it was. And like, you just said that it reminded me of that. I used to pack around as a kid. So, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go 10 canteen. I don't know. That's kind of old school. I think we should talk to Cody and Casey and see if we can get them to air this. You out there with a, <laughs> with a trad bow, an old timer, some cans oh. of sardines, a tin canteen <laughs> and a pig like and a pig bladder water, water reservoir. Yep, that's all you get. <laughs> cool. Awesome, man. Uh as far as uh tradition, uh I am I am getting more and more uh a sense that you are a guy who who honors tradition. Um hunting is a time honored tradition, and I want to know if you feel like that's at all being diminished by filmed hunts or uh social media. I would say yes and no. Again, it's a double-edged sword. Like more people now are aware of hunting, and I think we went through a stretch where that light that was shined on that was probably not the greatest. So we want to talk about ten years ago. We kind of got into a bad spot with hunting, and it became this very productized thing. You know, it was, it was there to sell products, and it was you know on TV just what became popular was not our best light by any stretch of the imagination. And so in that aspect, yes, filming hunts became uh, all about getting that thing on film. And I think it ebbs and flows. And so when you have that kind of happen, 
and all of a sudden it just becomes all about the kill, getting the kill shot, and then it just becomes so extreme. And then all of a sudden it ebbed the back way or ebbed the other way, and it was like, okay, this is not what we're about. A lot of us are about just the story that's told and the experience on how we do that. And so then it became about showing that and showing this backcountry experience and showing the struggle and stuff like that. And so is it good or bad? It's indifferent because it's always going to ebb and flow. Like we went through a phase where we portrayed the wrong light and now we came back and now I think we're doing a much better job. And without social media and filming and things like that, we wouldn't be able to recover from that. So it's good and bad. I mean, it's, it is what it is. and, And I think we're doing a much better job at kind of portraying that in the right light these days. Cool. All right. So, um, five pieces of gear that, uh, that we just talked about in an old traditional sense. Um, talk about five pieces of gear in a new, uh, more developed, more, uh, I would say more consumer driven, more, more of an opportunity for me to plug a few things. Um, five pieces of gear that you would take on that dream hunt of yours, um, as absolute, staple items like say i'm gonna go on a dream hunt and you know this is like what i want to pack uh gears come a long ways and it's amazing you know nowadays we don't have to go through what we what what used to have to go to like to me wool has always been a staple and maybe i'm cool like that and so like i love my marina wool stuff you know i run a lot of first light gear um i love wool i mean synthetics are cool but to me i'm very traditional so like i like having wool gear and so just what the layers are these days are amazing i'm not gonna lie if i go on a hunt i'm probably gonna have some some nicer gear um just just because and and it's you know it's there it's available and it makes life easy yep um optics have come a long ways you know and you know i run my mavens love them um they're a newer company i love the, the business model the guys are amazing like so you know i i'm gonna have my mavens um I don't know what else is going to be there. The technology with bows is, is, in, is crazy. You know, like what we can do with bows today is it's like borderline. Some guys are like, wow, it's getting too easy or it's getting too extreme. And so a lot of the traditional guys are like, wow, you know, cable guns have got so extreme that it's not even a challenge anymore. Um, and so like if I was on my dream hunt or whatever, I don't know, I guess I'd have, you know, my newer bows, um, things like that. The broadheads are amazing. You know, technology advances on those things. Um, what else? I don't know. Is that kind of cut? Is that where you're going with that? Yep, absolutely. So you're, what are you shooting a Matthews? You're shooting a Hoyt? What do you shoot a Matthews, okay. uh, the Halon 32. You like um, that? You like that? Setup? I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> that bow is ridiculous. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a new bow all the time guy. And so I had a, you know, old DXT. It's probably, I think 2009, that bull I shot, the bull I talked about, I shot that bull, uh, with my DXT, it was the first bow I shot with that one, and then I just gave that up this year. So ten years, same bow, and to jump from that to a new bow, you're like, holy crap, holy cow, this thing is amazing. This thing is a rocket, you know. Just the ability to shoot so consistently and smoothly, um, it takes a lot of that out. And so, like, I mean, those are amazing things to have the capabilities that we have today. And I mean, just technology and all the gear is amazing. And I think we're picking that up from a lot of the climbers, you know, the hunting industry is pulling from these guys that are extreme on the other end. So we're pulling gear that's very high end as far as like mountaineering and the using Marina wolves or the synthetics have gone a long ways. And so pulling, you know, even like the, 
the sleeping bag systems are amazing and everything's getting lighter. You know, in the old days, everything was so freaking heavy and you just pack so much weight. And now it's like, we're, we're realizing that we can pull a lot from these backpackers, climbers and things like that, lighten gear down and, you know, be able to pack a lot more gear, yep. you know, like freeze dried foods and, and not packing canteens of sardines instead, you know, and, and like all that kind of cool, cool guy gear stuff. I mean, it's all cool stuff. I mean, it's very, uh, it's very useful and it makes life a lot easier. Yeah. It makes, you know, a little bit less misery on the mountain. Yep. So on your, on your, uh, nostalgic hunt, you're using a, a trad bow for your modern day hunt. You're using your wheel bow and you shoot a Matthews, um, on your nostalgic hunt, you're probably going to be wearing wool on yeah. your, which is ironic because this, this, uh, is a nice, just a nice piece for wool in general, but in your modern day hunt, you're running wool. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's changed a lot. Like I remember the wool pants I had when I was a kid or old army surplus pants. And, uh, that's what I used elk hunting as a kid. And it hasn't changed a whole lot other than the, you know, gears much better fitting. It's a lot lighter. Um, you know, like the old school army surplus wool pants were super heavy, just thick, not cut. Now, you know, nowadays, you know, first light merino wool pants are like cut to fit, yeah. they fit nice. They're a tenth the weight and, you know, just as warm. So it's like, it just advances in gears pretty amazing over the years. Yep. You're going to go with, uh, you go with a, a Maven style or Mavens is, uh, is your, yeah. your optics, uh, preference. Yeah. I like, I mean the Mavens, uh, it's a new optics company. They're, you know, manufactured direct amazing stuff. Um, the quality is great. So that's what I'm running right now. And awesome. And awesome. for the price point, amazing glass. I'll have to check that out. Um, I use a lot of vortex stuff, but I'm gonna have to check Mavens out as well. Talk to me about two more items. Uh, what kind of boots do you like? And I think you had mentioned a, a sleeping bag. Let's just talk about those two things and then we'll be done with the, the questions. So when it comes to, to boots, I'm an old school, like surprise, surprise. I like leather, you know, I like a hard you know, leather boot with a boot, uh, with a, you know, a good abrasive or a non-abrasive, you know, like I don't, the Gore-Tex and things like that, I, I like to beat stuff up. And so I feel like the leather holds a little bit stronger. Um, it may not be as waterproof, but to me, like, I just like an old school leather boot, um, running crispies right now, super comfortable boot, just tried them out and, uh, on a couple hikes, love them, no hot spots, like right out of the box, super comfortable fit. So I'm running crispies right now. I mean, that's a high end boot. I, like, like I said, you know, a lot of guys, if buying a $400 boot, they're going to use once a year. Is it worth it? I mean, it took me a long time before I was buying $400 boots. And I think it has to do with the number of days in the field. Yep. If you're going to do an early season hunt, you know, honestly, I don't know if you need $400 boots. You just rock whatever you got. And I think, you know, the more, the farther into it you get, you start doing these backcountry hunts, you push yourself to extremes. That's where, you know, maybe a $400 pair of boots is worth its weight in gold. When I'm out there for 20 some days in a row, you know, that that's huge. Um, it's, but it's just, it's all relative. Um, so I love the crispies. That's what I'm running right now. And as far as sleeping bags, the man, it seems like the hot thing right now is the quilts. Um, you know, everyone's wanting to run a, the super down or, uh, the, what's it like quasi synthetic and down, uh, quilts, super lightweight, uh, great sleeping bag. I mean, the weight of sleeping bags is ridiculous. So that has dropped. Um, I mean, from old school sleeping bags to now what we run is just super lightweight stuff. And that's just what it's about. It's about cutting that weight, you know, and that's what guys are always chasing is that chasing the extra pounds or ounces. I've never even heard of that. The quilt style, who makes it? 
there's a bunch of companies that make them. Um, it's kind of been a, a hot, which is the one I just got. Um, Enlightened Equipment is the one um, that I'm running. And then uh, there's another one. I can't think of it. Darn it. Um, there's a few different ones. I know there's more coming out. The outdoor retailer show, there was a bunch of quilts there. So basically a quilt just doesn't have a back, so it connects to your uh, pad. And nice. so you're using the insulation from your pad, so it, it's a lot smaller. It cuts down. Because like when you're laying on that down, it does no – no R value when you're squished it down. So um, basically it's kind of like a half sleeping bag turned into a blanket and I haven't spent much time in them. So I'm kind of armchair or armchair quarterback in here, but um, from what everyone says, loves them. And you know, a lot of the guys have loved them. So I'm going to try it out this year. Nice. Enlightened equipment. I've never even heard of them, but I'm going to go check them out too. I know big Agnes was doing like a sleep system where they had their, their bag integrated with their pad, but this sounds like a, a, a little bit, of a spin off of that. And it sounds like we're progressing even further to shave weight and add our value. Yeah. And that's, that's a great system too. I've, um, one of my buddies uses that and I've slept in it. Uh, when talk about warm, like those are awesome. And they basically have the sleep pad that stays with it. So it doesn't fall. Like that's a great system too. And yeah, that's yeah, all about whatever you you're comfortable with. Yeah. Isn't it fun, man, to just to kind of circle back to a comment you made about just the, having the kind of the mountaineering, uh, gear come, full circle and, and kind of enter into our hunting arena. It's so much fun to see what's coming out and how all the companies are kind of coming together to, to just introduce better and better and faster and lighter and, and more thermal and faster wicking and quicker drying. And it's just like yep. everything is on an upswing right now. It's just a lot of fun to be in, in involved really. Yeah, I mean, like the outdoor outdoor retailer show. There's, I don't know that hunting guys were ever like a big part of that. And now you see, like, all my buddies were at the outdoor retail show, and like we're gonna do a like podcast talk about all the stuff that came out there, and that never happened before. And it was just like, oh, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, you guys are climbing mountains, we're climbing mountains. Maybe there's some overlap. And those guys were like light years ahead of us. Hunters just started using trekking poles. Like we always joke about how ridiculous that is. Like hunters would never use trekking poles. And then like we're like, oh wait, these things are super handy. Like perfect. <laughs> you have a company called Powder River Cartridge Company that caters to a lot of the cowboy action shooting enthusiasts. And you guys specialize in some of the calibers that are a little bit harder to uh, to find on the shelves at the big box stores. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always, I mean, as you've probably picked up, I'm kind of a little bit nostalgic. So I've always been into kind of lever guns, old school, you know, Winchesters. That was my thing. Like as a kid, I just loved, you know, old, old guns. And, uh, so it's kind of the route I went when, um, you started doing the ammo thing and, and from there it's just kind of grown. And like, I have just this passion for the West and true, you know, the traditional way of life and things like that. This has kind of always been interesting to me. And so, um, the guns were a part of that. And, and it's kind of interesting now because I started hunting, like I've always been a diehard bow hunter and I had these Western guns and it never really crossed my mind even to like combine the two worlds. And in the last year, you know, it's kind of been like this thing where I started hunting with some old school guns and it's kind of been a goal of mine now to do a hunt every year. We call this old gun. And, you know, last year I, I took my 4570 sharps and went horsebacked into the wilderness and, and, uh, and did an elk hunt with it. And so it was pretty cool. It was amazing actually. Like I huge fan of my sharps. I've shot my sharps for years. Never even considered hunting with it. I don't know why. And one day it was just like, I want to do some, some hunting, you know? And so now it's like my thing to take the sharps and go hunting. So this year I got a deer hunt that I'm going to do. And 
you know, it's kind of, it's just cool to me, like to, to go, to be in the woods with this gun, you know, this 1874 Sharps and just think how many people hunted before me with the same gun, you know? And like this year, this last year when I, I shot my elk with my Sharps and I'm standing there and it was just this overwhelming feeling of like, this is cool. This is like totally different than say being in the backcountry with my bow. It was just like how many people before me and I want that to kind of continue. And so I think that's why I hold on to that is that it's, it's, you know, I don't want us to ever forget those times. And then there's some, there's some darkness to that. I mean, how many Buffalo did we kill and waste? And, you know, there's some, some really bad things that are associated with that gun. But at the same time, like it ebbs and flows, right? Like life just like, we realized, man, we screwed that up big time. And now we've come back and the, the story of the conservation, like, would it be the same had we had not had this time that we we learned hey don't kill off everything in the country because that's not good and so we we went back the other way and so i think it's still important to remember those times and remember those traditions and i think that's what's big to me and that's why you know i kind of do this old gun and i i hang on to to the nostalgia of old western guns and and it's cool because with my company i get to to meet people who have that passion for old school guns all over and so it's kind of neat just to like customers call me all the time i got this yeah i got this and like we just chat about old school guns and you know it's, i always say i have the best customers in the world because they're so passionate about their guns and you know like we do we have an instagram and i don't know how many people from instagram have just been like holy cow i love your page love old guns like you guys have brought this like i didn't even realize i liked old guns and like just following your page is like so great <laughs> it's like it's cool it's cool to like kind of bring that back just a little bit yeah man that's awesome so how would uh, how would somebody go about trying to find you guys I mean, you can find us on Instagram, the Powder River Cartridge. Uh, it's Powder underscore Cartridge. No, Powder underscore River underscore Cartridge, whatever. Uh, I'm sure you can find it. Um, that's a great way to find us. And from there, you know, ammo is on the website. Everything we do is kind of order direct. So that everyone orders off the website and we can ship it to you. And that's kind of how most of it works. And so, um, yeah, that's probably the best way to find that company. Okay, cool. And what's the web address? www.powderrivercartridge.com. Any of you listeners who are into uh, cowboy action shooting, shooting uh, long Colts, 45 long Colts, uh, any of the 4570 Sharps, traditional, you know, single shot, uh, old millets, old U.S. Navy sniper rifles, really. Um, <laughs> that's right. uh, that's an old time honored tradition that uh, there's, a, there's a really cool uh, and what sounds like a really cool close uh, following um, connected to that. So if you're part of that, uh, head over to uh, www.powderrivercartridge.com. And if you're um, just into old guns, like go check out our Instagram. I mean, we try to post cool old guns and keep that nostalgic feel to it. Kind of very cowboy. We do a lot of cowboy stuff. So yeah, that's um, awesome. hence the handlebar mustache, right? Yeah, right. Cody, if you guys can't, uh, you can't see what I'm seeing, but he's been uh, cracking me up this whole time with a Buffalo Bill Cody style uh, uh, upper lip mustache. caterpillar. Yeah, he's got... He's got, uh, he's got some facial hair going on. It's awesome. <laughs> Cody, you also have uh, a podcast and you guys, uh, you guys feature uh, a weekly episode. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it started out as a uh, you know, weekly, we started doing a weekly and it's kind of grown from there. And now we're like two or three a week and talking a lot of hunting stuff, but it's just, you know, doing stories and stuff like that. 
Awesome. So if you guys want to learn more about uh, Cody, uh, the, the backcountry big game hunting movement or uh, Wapiti Wednesdays, uh, you can listen to Cody and, and friends talk about backcountry bow hunting and killing elk. Uh, it is the Rich Outdoors podcast. Yeah, check it out. It's the Rich Outdoors podcast. We do a Thursday episode. We do a Wednesday, which is like an elk hunting episode. And right now we're doing a um, deer hunting or mule deer Monday, muley Monday podcast. So um, it'll switch out throughout the year. We do a bunch of different stuff. It's pretty hardcore hunting for anybody who's kind of into that thing. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, appreciate it. Yeah, it's been been a good time doing the podcast thing. It's fun. Awesome. Cody, we're so appreciative of your time. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Um, we wish you the very best, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll reconnect here pretty soon. All righty. Had a blast, man. Thanks.